what is faith? So yesterday, we focused a little bit on what is grace. And so I'm going to review that one more time after we pray. But if you'll join me with, in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we know that you are the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And so we seek you today. We ask for your Holy Spirit. We pray that um, we will receive assurance when we ask in a, a contrite heart for your forgiveness of our sins and that the burden of guilt would be lifted away and so Satan would have nothing in us. We thank you so much for each one here. We ask a blessing on our study. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a, this is a great size group to make this talk interactive. So we were just talking about science versus like faith or what the Bible says, you know, because science is saying some things. But before we get back into that, I'm going to just review a couple of the principles. So if you've been coming to my talks, this will be a review. If not, it'll be just a quick introduction, but it probably won't be enough. But it might spark something in your mind so that you go back and study. Uh, yesterday, we answered the question, what is grace? And that's a viable question because that's what we're saved by, Right. We're saved by grace. And so I know people who have studied the Bible for years and then still come to me and ask me, what is grace? And it's a good question because Jesus delivered the words of life and yet never once used the word grace. Isn't that amazing? Jesus in his earthly ministry never once use the word grace. But in John 17, to his father, as he was praying right before going to Gethsemane, he said, I have finished the work. I have delivered the words that you have given me. And so, but he never said grace. Do you know why? Because every word that he did say was grace, right? Because we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So instead of just talking about grace, every word that came out was grace. Do you see that? And Jesus' deeds, his actions are grace. But the, the spirit of prophecy definition for grace is grace is an attribute of God exercised toward men. So that's every single attribute of God. You know, like his regularity, the sun coming up at a predictable time, that's grace. You know, so that we can gain trust in him. We can count on him. In fact, we can predict when a lunar eclipse is going to happen. That's grace. Do you realize that? That's grace because that's an attribute that he has of being predictable and regular. So the birds singing to encourage us, that's grace. The breeze or the shade, that's grace. The service of the angels is grace. And those things we're saved by. The prayers, you know, the, the hearing of our prayers, that's grace. And Jesus coming and taking on humanity and living his life sinlessly, and then offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice, that's grace. Okay, but all of those things, his patience, his mercy, his love, his tenderness, his compassion, all those things are grace. And all those things combined is what saves us, is what saves us. Okay, and that's why it's important not to dis, you know, um, like just dispel the things that are out there. Like I, we spoke very much yesterday about connecting, again, nature with the word. In fact, for those of you that weren't here, there's a very powerful quote. It said, nature is the key that unlocks the treasures of the word. Wow. That's a powerful That's quote. Deep. Unlocks the treasure of 
the nature is the key that unlocks the treasure house, is the actual quote, the treasure house of the word of God. So why would you try to break into the treasure house? Why not use the key? Amen. Right? Wow. And so we're saved by grace. And so nature is a part of grace because you see God created. God spoke and men wrote down what he said, right? But in nature, he spoke and it was. Mm -hmm. They're both active results of whatever he said. And so the two actually cannot be separated. Okay. And so then, because nature is the key that unlocks the word, then we get into these confusing things where people who study nature in the form of science come to conclusions that are different than what the Bible says, right? And so how do we resolve the difference between science and, and faith, right? How do we? So I'm going to just, one of my favorite things, I wasn't planning on talking about this today, but one of my favorite evidences for the truth of the Bible is found in the book of Daniel. Okay, let's, let's go to the book of Daniel. I wasn't going to do this, but it's really good. And this is a principle that if you take with you, will be a safeguard. Because science is going to be very convincing. It's going to be very convincing. Uh, but the word of God needs to be convicting, which is stronger than convincing, right? Because we have the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords. Do you remember this story? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Belshazzar was the king of Babylon. What happened that day? He makes a feast. In the middle of the feast, the writing on the wall. Right? The hand appears, writes on the wall. That's where we get the phrase, the writing's on the wall, which means it's over. That's how we use that phrase, oh, the writing's on the wall. We can tell what's going to happen. And so the writing came on the wall. Daniel comes in and you know, interprets the writing. Um, and there was a promise given to Daniel, the promise given to Daniel, if he could interpret the writing. Do you remember what that was? You can go look. It's an open book question. <laughs> Yes, he gets purple clothing. And what else? Gold chain, and he'll be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Okay, good. He gets purple clothes, a gold chain. What verse is that? He gets purple clothes, a gold chain, and the third highest in the kingdom. Now then, just after this, and Daniel's like, keep it. You know, because Daniel had already had the vision of Daniel 2. So he already knew that Babylon was that head of gold, and he also knew by the study of books, it said the number of years that Babylon was numbered. He said, it says later that he understood by the study of books, the book of Jeremiah, that how many years Babylon was going was to go. So he knows, I don't know the day, but I know we're right there. So if you're going to make me third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon, that means nothing to me. Okay, that means absolutely nothing. So he's like, keep your stuff. But the amazing thing is um, Babylon does fall that night. Cyrus comes in with his armies right into the city and they, they kill Belshazzar. And it actually says that that happened that night. Now, history, every historian, every record of history 
said that the last king of Babylon was a man by the name of Nabonidus. And there was actually no record at all in the Bible, or in all the history records, of a man named Belshazzar. None. And so we had uh, this decision. Are we going to look at all these historians, even very early historians, you know, that had visited Babylon themselves, were saying Nabonidus was the last king of, of Babylon. And so it wasn't until the 1900s. So I don't remember the exact date. I have it in a, you know, in a presentation, but I wasn't planning to speak on this, so it's not fresh in my mind. But until the 1900s, they actually were excavating there, and they dug up a cuneiform. A cuneiform is a, is a clay cylinder. Okay, are you familiar with these? Clay cylinders, they're round and, and long, and they would write on them history. And then, and this was regular, so and the kings would have their history written, their stories, and they would bury them at the base of walls in Babylon. So they actually dug one up, and then they had it translated just in the 1900s. So this is like, you know, a couple thousand years, almost 2,500 years of history said the Bible must just be a story because all of the history records agree that Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon. So until the 1900s, so if you were, if you were living in that 2,000-year period, you would have a choice. Do I believe the Bible or every single expert? And so then they, when they translated this, the, by the way, that, that cylinder is called the Nabonidus Chronicle, which was the last king of Babylon. And it, you know what it says? That he was the last king of Babylon. But he loved to go to war. So he went out of Babylon with his armies. And so as he left, he went for, I can't remember the number of years, but something like 12 or 15 years. And when he left, it says there, and I left the kingdom to my son Belshazzar. Okay? That's the only historical record, other than the Bible now, that the word Belshazzar even exists. Isn't that awesome? And so then it redeemed the Bible as being the best source for information because it could not have been written by any historian. Because if they were writing, you know, a story about a man named Daniel and just making stuff up, they would have said Nabonidus here instead of Belshazzar. Right? The other interesting thing is when Joseph was in Egypt, right? And so he interprets Pharaoh's dream. What does Pharaoh make him? Yeah, prime minister. He said, you will be like me in all the kingdom. Basically, I'm the only one that's higher than you. You're going to be second in the kingdom. But here, the promise to Daniel was third, which is crazy. Who would promise third? I mean, if you were just writing this as a story, why would you say third? Because it doesn't even explain why. It's just third. But, of course, Belshazzar has Nabonidus, his father, out there still at war, still alive somewhere, and knows he can't actually make him second in the kingdom. So the Bible has been vindicated by history after history condemned the Bible for thousands of years. Isn't that amazing? So if, his, or if science, you know, telling us about how to live healthy or something, contradicts the Bible, throw it out. Even if it's like 
contradicting for a thousand years. Throw it out. All true science has its foundation in the Word of God, in the Bible. Okay? So that is, that's just my little thing on, you know, science versus the Bible or history versus the Bible. Trust the Bible. It's been vindicated. It's been tested. It's been proven. Um, yeah, so we were, we were talking about what science is saying for diet versus what the Bible says is the best diet. And they contradict each other in a lot of cases. So go with the Bible. You'll be satisfied. Now, for me, as a farmer, I put this to the test all the time. This is actually my farming manual. Amen. Did you know that? This is my farming manual. It tells me how to farm. There's a lot of details in this book about how to farm. And then, of course, in the Spirit of Prophecy, it magnifies some of those things. It gives me even more detail. And there are a lot of successful farmers out there telling us how to farm that contradict this. But see, we're not just laboring for the fruit that perisheth. Right? We're trying to get the fruits of righteousness. And so these methods tell me not just how to get like an apple or a peach or a pear, but also how to come into harmony and get the greatest lessons from nature. Because it's the key that unlocks this. So they should, they should harmonize. Right? So that's, that's what I do in farming. So that's just a quick testimony. Okay. So uh, let's... Let's review a couple other principles we've talked about is that when truth comes, we acknowledge it. So like, let's say science does tell us something and it's like partially true. You know, it sounds okay, but then this other part sounds not okay. When that happens, like be intentional to acknowledge the truth. You know, we don't have to reject science altogether. But as you acknowledge truth and then you get to the one that you can't acknowledge, then throw that one out or let it stand on its own and separate it and then take the good. Um, That's okay. The other thing uh, we talked about is on the first day. How many of you were there the first day when I gave that short testimony? Do you remember that word before the testimony? Hezekiah called that that brazen serpent something. It was Nehushtan. Okay, so for those of you that weren't there, you can study the the story of Hezekiah. It's powerful. Um, Hezekiah, it says there was no king like him before or after in Judah. Um, He broke all of the idols, you know, all of like the Baal worship and all those things. But he also broke the brazen serpent, the brass serpent that Moses had held up on a pole that saved the Israelites' life. And he broke it. It was irreplaceable. It was like a symbol of their milestone walk with God. And he destroys it. And he calls it Nehushtan. Now, the word Nehushtan in in the margin of my Bible says it's a piece of brass. Isn't that awesome? He just estimated it in its true value. It's just a piece of brass. But people were actually burning incense to it and all these things, and he's saying it's a piece of brass. So yes, it's irreplaceable. Yes, it's something that Moses made. Yes, Moses led us into the promised land, but it's a piece of brass, and you are elevating it higher than it needs to, so I'd rather destroy it than keep it around. And so that teaches us about what to do in our lives. And so some of what I'm going to share this morning, you know, all the way through, is sort of how I've done some of those things, or how the Lord has helped me do those things, destroy the things in me. Um, the other thing we talked about yesterday is in agriculture, and the Lord is a gardener, right? He planted the Garden of Eden with his hands. Did you know that? 
Yeah, he planted it with his hands, not just with his words. He formed man with his hands, not just with his words. So God shows us a very clean example at the beginning that our, what we do and what we say should be the one. So that's one of the things I do very much in my ministry. Um, that's probably why, you know, my booth doesn't look all that great. I don't know if you've seen it. It's empty right now. Um, you know, I don't have a business card right now. It's because I'm still at like a foundational level where I'm trying to get things established. And I don't want my words to run ahead of my actions. I don't want to become a fig tree full of leaves and no fruit. Amen. You know, once you taste and see the fruit, then that'll take care of itself. Um, so example is very important. In fact, um, again, we talked about a quote for Paul. He was the greatest evangelist that ever lived outside of Jesus. And Ellen White says his power was that his life exemplified his message. So we can come with a message, but if we don't come with the life, it has very little to no power. So we need to be living these things. Okay. We talk about in a garden that after sin, um, the book of Isaiah chapter 5 talks about God having a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And the very first thing he does is he fences it. That's the very first thing he does. And so we talked, how can we build a fence spiritually? And... The reason to build a fence are to keep out the big predators, like deer, right? But there are small predators that can get in in other ways. But you know what? If the deer eat your plants down to the ground, you'll never even get to the point to deal with those other smaller enemies that are inside the fence. And so we talked about how building out a fence, figuring out those things that are like big enemies in your life, enemies of spirituality, enemies of your time with God, enemies of doing what you proclaim, you know, doing what you read. Keep those big things out, and then that allows you to deal with the small enemies in your heart, like selfishness, pride, you know, coveting, all those things. Okay, so that's the review. Now let's get on to uh, a new message. Let's go back to our base. We're going to talk about abiding in Christ. So let's go to John chapter 15. And I've been focusing on the Father in this because I want us to understand that being attached to Christ puts us under the special care of the Father. Now, everyone gets care from the Father. He feeds everyone. The Bible says He feeds the wicked. He's good to the wicked. He feeds the people the people who put him on the cross, the energy that they gained in order to do that, they got from eating food that God made right. Wow. All right? I mean, he feeds the wicked. But there's a special care that when we give our permission to him, he gets to do more. Okay? He gets to do more. And so that's what we're going to look at here. Um, let's go to John chapter 15, verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. That means gardener or vineyard caretaker. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. So who's taking it away? God. Yeah, God the Father. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Purgeth, in this case, means cut it back. That is 
it may bring forth more fruit. So he's only doing this to branches that are abiding in the vine. Mm. Amen. Wow. Do you see that? Yeah, I do. These are not branches that have yet been um, put on the vine. And so I want to talk about that. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, we need to be born again, brothers and sisters. Amen. We need to be born again. Jesus said that. And the way that these branches got onto a vine, I'm just going to share how this happens. A man goes out and he looks for something that will produce good fruit, you know, and he finds one and he actually cuts the branch off of the vine that it's on. Now, that's a very dangerous situation because as soon as it's cut from that branch, it begins to dry, wither and die. But he does that at risk that he can move that branch over to the true vine that is rooted and grounded. And then he grafts it in. Okay? So you are that branch, it says. Right? You are that branch. So the question is, and this is sort of the theme of all of my talks today, is how do we go from a branch attached to a vine that is right now like our trust, the source of like what we think is safety in life. How do we go from allowing God to sever us from that and then carry us over to the true vine? But before we get into that, I want to talk about that special care that we're going to receive. So this is going to be incentive. But most people look at this as not incentive, but punishment. Okay, so I am here to like shed light where darkness exists. Okay, in the book Desire of Ages, um, Ellen White says that the world was in darkness because of misapprehension of God. Okay, misapprehension of God. So what I'm going to try to do today is dispel the misapprehension of God uh, a little bit here because some of us are so afraid of discipline and correction, partially because our parents did it the wrong way to us, you know. That's partially it. Okay, so we see here in John chapter 15 that when we're attached to the vine, God either purges the branch, which means prune it back if we're going to bear fruit. The other one he just takes away, unfortunately. As Paul says, we think better things of you, brothers. This is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, I believe. It's talking the earth that drinketh in the rain that come off upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for him by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which bringeth forth thorns and briars is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So it's basically talking about these two different branches, one that's going to bring forth fruit and one that won't. And then Paul says, but we think better things of you, brothers. In other words, we assume that you are going to produce fruit. So that's the route we're going to study today. And let's go uh, quickly to a, a story of mine. This is my daughter. Aww. Yeah, that's my daughter. It'll come up again. Is that your Yes, I have two daughters. This is my older daughter. She's 12. This week, she'll be 13. Wow. It's a big... <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, yes. She is half Japanese. Can you tell? Yeah, so my wife was born in Japan, yeah, raised in Japan. That's my daughter, Sophia. 
oh, how much discipline and correction has gone into raising her. But she is so sweet. You see what's going on? I mean, she's got mess all over her face. Do you know what that is? It's actually fresh apricot. She loves natural remedies and things. And so she had, we had a young lady, this is her hand. We had a young lady from the city staying with us. And she really didn't like the country, but she, she loved her skin. And so we wanted to show her how like nature and natural things, things that come from nature, actually support the things that she already likes. And so there, uh, my daughter and her, we had these apricots that were half good. So they cut out the bad and then use the rest and, uh, for this skin thing. And if you go to our booth, Sophia, she's the one that makes those salves and the, the lip balm and things that we have at the booth. This is her business. So I'm just here with her product. <laughs> but how much correction, how much pruning has gone into raising this young lady to the point where she desires, you know, I just told her that I'm going to get a booth here. And so she went off, she ordered products. She, she was calling friends to get the beeswax. You know, she just does everything and she brings it to me. And then she packed it in my bag and said, dad, it's ready to go. I mean, I did nothing, but that fruit came from a lot of training the whole way. Okay. A lot of training. So I'm going to show you Sophia the first day I met her. That's Sophia. This is, this is in an Adventist hospital called Castle Medical Center in Kaneohe, Hawaii. She was born in Hawaii. She's in an incubator, though, because um, on Labor Day 2005, we had about five and a half weeks until our due date. And my wife and I, you know, my wife's very pregnant at that point, but... You know, we have five and a half weeks. We had been going to classes, you know, birthing classes, knowing what to expect. We had never been through this before. Um, I found out that I'm actually a pretty good coach for those things. I've, I've gone, you know, if I was a woman, I'd be very interested in uh, midwife, midwifery. So if you women out there, there's a great blessing in like, you know, coaching someone through those sufferings and then seeing the joy of new life. It's so beautiful. Um, but one of the greatest things is to know that the person going through those sufferings can trust the person that's helping them. It's, it's a major difference. So we, there we were on Labor Day. We feel like we have all the time in the world. We're supposed to get her little nursery room ready. And, and so that was the weekend we were going to do it. But I was away on a trip and I get back. And so my wife and I were catching up. And so we didn't actually do those things because we had so much time. This is just an object lesson. I'm spending a little bit of extra time on it because brothers and sisters, the birth pains are getting stronger. We can see that we're going to have new life very soon. And so it is labor day. It's time to labor, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. On labor day, 2005, my wife and I were sitting around a table on our lanai. That's a Hawaiian term for porch outside. And um, my wife started to complain about the chair not being very comfortable. She's like, you know, these chairs are just not comfortable at all. We need to get new chairs. But actually, that was labor. <laughs> that was labor that was uncomfortable for her going into labor. So we went into labor on Labor Day, five and a half weeks early. 
and little Sophia was born. She was so small, premature. They tried to actually delay the labor because the hospital had a children's hospital on the other side of the island that they wanted us to go to because they weren't comfortable with how early she was. That's my index finger there that she's trying to hold on to. She was small. That's my hand covering her. My fingers from tip to knuckle are bigger than her. This is the relationship of our Father to us. He has to separate himself from us because he's so holy that he would destroy us. You know, even the breath that was coming out of my mouth was sort of like toxic to her. So she had to be in a special incubator that had only oxygen or very high levels of oxygen because her lungs were not working. And so I could only reach through those portals and do my work with my hands. But I couldn't hold her. I couldn't draw her to my chest. I couldn't warm her with my body like I wanted to. And that oxygen dries the skin out. She was just so dry. Her lungs stopped breathing a few times that week. They had to resuscitate her. It was like really a rough week. Oh, how much I wanted to hold her. How much I wanted to hold her. So the father purges the branch. The branch that's on the vine, he purges. He disciplines. But he's doing it like this father to us. He sees us for what we are. The Bible says he knows that we're dust. Like he knows how weak we are. He knows that if he could just come into our presence, we would just die. So... We are not consumed, though, because of his mercies. It's of his mercies that we're not consumed. So I want to go show you something very important about um, the relationship between a child and a father. So going back to my 12-year-old, here she is. She has endured my correction from that time until till now. She has endured. But I tell her, I tell her, you get to choose who your father is. One time she started to show a little rebellion. She's been actually a very good daughter. Stephen knows her. So. Um, she's been a very good daughter, very obedient. But actually, there were a few times where she showed a little bit of rebellion. And I told her, you get to choose who your father is. And right now, you're not choosing me. And so I want to show that to you in the Bible. Let's go to Hebrews. Chapter 12. Okay. It says this in verse 5, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. It says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation. What's exhortation? Hmm? Someone says encouragement. Correction. Correction. Admonition. Strong admonition. What's admonition then? Maybe we need to make this simple. Let's go look it up right now. Let's go over to our dictionary. My definition was going to be um, encouragement. But let's make sure that I'm right. 
Exhort means to, yeah, encourage, to embolden, to cheer. To cheer and to advise. So, the Bible says here that ye have forgotten the exhortation. You've forgotten the cheerful encouragement. You've forgotten the cheerful encouragement which speaketh unto you as unto children. Okay? And then it says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. See, we normally think of correction and discipline as being so uncomfortable and, and just, you know, wearisome and, and not joyful. And that's true. But we forget the cheerful encouragement. So then it says, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement. Now, this is old English. So let's just say that in like our language. If ye be without chastisement. What does that mean? If you won't have it. Without means if you will put it outside of yourself or away from you. So if you will just not deal with it. That's what we say. I don't want to deal with it. If you won't have it. If you won't receive it. If you won't accept it. Then what does it say? If ye be without chastisement in verse 8. Whereof all are partakers. That means God is trying to offer it to everyone. Then are ye bastards and not sons. What does the word bastard mean? Yeah, you're a child without a father. Or at least a father that's not known. Right? So we actually get to choose whether or not he's our father. And how do we choose? Whether or not we endure his correction. In other words, does his word, words to us, when he says, you're going the wrong direction, turn, do we say, yes, Dad? Or do we say, no, I'm going to keep going? That, you know, we, we talk so much about these things. You know, we talk about grace, and I just told you that the, Jesus never once in his public ministry, on his time on earth, recorded in the Bible, used the word grace, Right? But it was every word that came out of his mouth that was grace. We say how we're saved by our relationship with Jesus. Do you know that the word relationship doesn't show up in the Bible? <laughs> so we keep saying these things of how we're saved, and they're all true. But do we understand them from what he told us? So he tells us here that we're actually saved by the relationship of father-son. And that father-son relationship is acknowledged and protected by enduring his correction. Okay? And so then it says, there's another one which I'll tell you in a minute. It says, for, then it says, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily, for a few days, chastened us after their own pleasure, but he, for, 
for our profit. The only reason he's doing it is so that you will grow and produce fruit. That's the only reason he's cutting you. That's the only reason he's, you know, doing anything that hurts. But then this is another thing. It says, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And now it tells us the truth of the matter. It says, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. So sometimes we think a relationship with Jesus is just so sweet and so nice. And it is, as long as you keep in remembrance one thing. What's that? The exhortation that you are sons and not bastards. That you are in the relationship with Jesus. It's not joyous. I don't have a feeling of joy at all because no chastening seemeth to be joyous. I don't necessarily have joy in this relationship, but I have a cheerful encouragement that he's treating me like a loving father. You see that? So I want to make sure that we're not making decisions just based on feeling. Then it says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. There are many people walking around who are being corrected by God that just, you know, lift up the hands that hang down. The hands that hang down are discouraged hands. Right? We need to encourage people. Encourage people. Yeah, you might be in sin. Yeah, you might be carrying a heavy burden or maybe even dealing with guilt. Those things, other than guilt, are used to bring you back to God. And so be encouraged, brothers and sisters. You are children of God. As many as received him gave he power to be sons of God. So remember that encouragement. As you feel, you know, stressed. You know, one, one person came to me and he said, you know what? We should, like, be joyous in all things. And I agree we should be cheerful, as cheerful as possible. Jesus was always cheerful. And when he was struggling, he didn't show it on his countenance. Of course, in Gethsemane, his countenance changed. Gethsemane's countenance changed. Um, and so this young man was saying to me that I needed to be joyous in all things. And I said, well, you know what? If the Lord is chastening me right now, because um, he was sort of saying, just ignore everything and just be joyous. And I was saying, no, the Lord is actually pressing home my need of him in a need of change. And so I don't want to just like ignore it and pretend to be cheerful. I want to acknowledge that this is not joyous in the present, but it's his correction. And so I want to seek, what is he trying to teach me? Do you understand? And that's the encouragement. So that we can only see by faith. The reason is, is because we don't get to see the Father's face as he does it to us. You know, we're separated from our Father. So as his hands come down and correct us and prune us, it hurts. It's not joyous. And we don't get to see his face as he does it. So we get to imagine his face. And many of us, through a misapprehension of who he is, imagine him you know, trying to hurt us. But he's just this loving father that we, we just can't see his face. So then we have to look at the face of Jesus. That's why it says the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus. So when you look at the face of Jesus, you can then see the face of God your Father correcting you. Do you see that? And that's by faith alone. Now the beautiful thing is, the face of God, again, we went over this yesterday, but I'm going to bring it back into this message. Um, the face of God would destroy us, right? 
God told Moses, no man sees my face and lives. The face of God would destroy us. It's so holy and pure and bright. But Jesus, he sent his son so that we could look into the face of God. And not just look into the face of God. I talked to you about children being able to climb up on his lap and use his beard to pull themselves up. And do you think Jesus said, don't touch my face? Of course not. He loved the feeling of the child's hand on his beard. You know how I know? I love it. Even when my two-year-old grabs my lip and pulls it so hard that I get a sore there later. But just the fact that he feels so comfortable, you know, holding my face. Ah, it's so beautiful. I actually preached the sermon on that once. And then we had the closing hymn and my little boy ran up to me. And I picked him up. He was still one. And I picked him up, and as we were singing the song, he put his whole fist in my mouth. <laughs> and the congregation was like, oh, this is like providential, because I was talking about the child handling the face of God. And that's what oh, we wow. say, right? Because John, in 1 John, it says, the things that we have seen and heard and handled of the Word of God from the beginning, okay? So we have gotten to see Jesus, which reflects the knowledge of the light of the glory of God and so we get to see Jesus, and we get to handle his face. Children get to squeeze his cheeks and pull on his ear. And so do you do that with Jesus? As you're reading, do you get so close, you know, placing yourself that he's actually ministering to you? And the correction, his beauty, that he's only trying to heal. He's only trying to produce fruit in you. I mean, do you get so close that you grab his nostrils? <laughs> I mean, my, my boy, when he started noticing that there were holes in my head, he wanted to go into each one of them. I mean, it was like, it was, that's just what he does. God wanted us to see the glory of his face so much that when he sent his son to reveal that to us, that he even allowed people to smack his face. And he turned the other cheek. And spit on his face and mock him to his face. The God who's so pure would just destroy people if he revealed himself, sent his son to show a face that could be punched and spat upon. Ah, Jesus is so beautiful. Do you see Jesus hanging on the cross as a soldier in a war winning the greatest victory that's ever been won? Do you see that? How do you see Jesus when he hangs on the cross? Humble. He's so humble and meek, and yet he was winning the greatest victory ever won. And do you know what he won? He won the right to destroy evil. Amen. The Bible says that he won the right to destroy the works of the wicked one. Now, how do you win that? Because perfect love casteth out fear. So if God would have destroyed evil before the cross, even angels, unfallen worlds, and all humans who lived would still have fear. But when Jesus hung on the cross and showed how, how we could handle him and what his intentions were, now from there, with that victory, he can go and destroy evil, knowing 
that we don't have to be afraid of him when he doesn't. Because he would not even preserve his own life to save those who are willing to endure his correction. Okay, do you understand? He won our love and dispelled fear on the cross. And so it is that the relationship of a child with a father is dependent upon dealing, not just dealing with, but cheerfully enduring the correction of our father, even if it's not joyous. I've learned this in the garden practically. I knew this for, for a few years, but to put it into practical, you know, like where I really can almost celebrate an unjoyous situation, knowing that God's correcting me, I learned in the garden. I learned like when I was losing produce and, and enemies, you know, the, the little raccoons and things, getting hundreds of watermelons. I actually could celebrate that because I knew he was teaching me how to be a better farmer. And then I meet people who teach me how to build better fences. And, uh, and, those are th and I would not even care, really. I would say, oh, that's nice. You have, you, know, you have your thing. But now when I hear from a man who has a better fence than I have, and I've had that loss, I've gone through those struggles, I like listen very carefully. Okay, so is that going outside of the fence or is that coming inside the fence? How high? You know, what are you doing? What materials? I really want to know because I want to make that a part of my experience. And so when you start enduring the correction of God, when you hear a sermon, you start to think the same way. Okay, I want, to, I want that part to be a part of my experience. Okay, how does this work? And then you go to the Word and you start studying and you celebrate in the fact that God is growing you as a father would a child. And so this is what I wanted to show you this morning. Now it's 10.14. I think we have about 10 more minutes. 10 more minutes. Do you have any questions with this? Because there's a whole segment sort of in addition to that that I wanted to show you. And I could probably fit it in. And if not, we'll just squeeze it into the next one. And then if you go to another one, it'll be an audio verse. So it's by faith that we endure his correction because we can't see his face. And it's by faith. And we don't feel joyous. So it's by faith that we're cheerfully enduring it. Okay? It's by faith that we are saved through grace. And grace is that teacher that corrects us. Did you know that? Because Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation. So this is not like a light grace. This is the grace that bringeth salvation. Hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came not just, I want to kind of slow down, not just to save us, but to purify us and to make us a, a peculiar people. He wants to purify us, and that only comes through correction. That comes only through correction. So I have a question for you. Is faith, is faith invisible? I've heard sermons that it is. I've also heard sermons that it's not. So I want to ask you, is faith invisible? I get some no's, yes and no. Yes and no. 
Ah, that might have been the best answer I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. Ah, yes. It's a little bit like the wind, maybe. Let's go see what the Bible says. Do you, does anybody know where the Bible defines faith? Hebrews 11. So let's go to Hebrews 11. And I'll show you where a lot of the confusion about faith comes in. It's right, actually, in the definition itself. But then once you look at it, it's just so obvious. Okay. Hebrews 11, chapter, or verse 1, says this about faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it's things hoped for and things not seen. That's what we usually translate that definition to. But it says substance and evidence. Those are tangible things. That's right. Those are tangible things. See, faith is actually substance and evidence, not unseen. It's just the substance of things not seen. And that's one of the reasons that I love to point to nature. Because actually, nature is the substance of things unseen. That's what... Right? Like, God spoke. We couldn't see His words. But then there's the evidence that He spoke. Right? And so nature is actually a substance of something unseen. And so that's in the Bible, right? Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of Him from the foundation of the world, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. You see that? So we can actually look at nature and see invisible things. And so it is with our faith. People should be able to look at us and see the invisible things of faith. Right? That we, they should be able to see that we're heading to a different country. That we're enduring unjoyous things because of the joy that's set before us. Do you understand? That's what, when we look at Jesus, that's exactly what we see. We see, a, we see a human, you know, containing divinity who is enduring things that are terrible for the joy that's set before him. He shows us what faith is. So, the reason I want to bring that up is what is faith? Faith is active. It's the energy that comes from believing in God's Word. Because God's Word is powerful. It's living and it's alive. And it contains the enabling to do whatever it says. And so when God went to that paralytic, the one that had not used his legs for maybe his whole life, but well over 20 years, and he said, take up your bed and walk, that man actually made a decision with his mind to move his legs. And in making that decision on faith, his legs moved. And I'm telling you, I've actually experienced this faith a little bit. I tore, I, I tore both of my meniscus cartilages in my knees at the same time. And wow, did it hurt. But I had no job because I had already left the corporate world. I had these things and I needed to earn some money. And it hurt to bend. Oh, I would wake up, it would hurt so bad. But I went to a job that I had already been given to renovate a bathroom. And so I was going to be carrying in like this one-piece bathroom, doing construction work, climbing, bending, kneeling. And so I just prayed and said, Lord, if you're calling me to this today, I know that you're going to enable me. And every day I'd wake up and not know how I was going to go about my work. And I went about the work. And every day he gave me just enough strength to do it. And slowly... My cartilage has been healed over time, being careful and 
continuing to walk by faith and not by sight. So what I want us to do is I want us to imagine that our faith is being able to, by faith, see the face of God looking at us as a loving father and, and actually desiring, actually desiring his correction because it tells us that we're his children. Okay? Now, um, now I want us to go to a text. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, 13. This text, I want us to see something very, very interesting that you may not have thought of before, but when it hit me, it made me like remember that exhortation that speaks to us as sons, okay, which is what the Bible tells us we need. So 13.13 says, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, or love, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And so sometimes because it says the greatest is charity, we want to be great. So we only focus on the charity and kind of dismiss faith and hope a little bit. But did you realize the reason that charity is greater than those other two is because it will last forever? But faith and hope will not. Mm, wow. Charity, the reason it's greater than the others is because it will endure forever. But faith and hope will pass away. They will not endure forever. Do you know why? The Bible teaches us that if we can see what we hope for, it's no longer hope or faith. Because faith is the evidence of things unseen. But once Jesus comes back, brothers and sisters, and we can see him clearly face to face, and we can see the Father's glory and stand in his presence, it's no longer faith and hope. We can see it. We attain it. We have it. But we have charity. We have love for him. We have love to be in his presence. We love to be there. And he loves us. So the reason it's greater, but the reason that that's awesome, though, is because now abideth faith and hope. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to embrace faith and hope. Okay? Now is the time. Do you realize, like, that kind of pruning correction goes away? We're going to learn forever and grow forever. But the fact that we would turn the wrong way and have to endure like a painful, non-joyous correction, that goes away too. So today is the day to embrace that non-joyous, you know, by faith, his correction. Because now is the time. There will come a time where that goes away. And if we didn't embrace those things now, if we did not endure those corrections by faith now, we lost our opportunity. And then when we get to see face to face, we'll actually run for the rocks. If we didn't embrace the correction now by faith and hope for better things to come. Do you see that? The greatest of these is charity. The beautiful thing is, even during our correction time, we get to experience charity. Isn't that the love of God. The love of the Father. The love of the Father was Jesus' favorite topic, we're told, to speak about. The love of the Father was Jesus' favorite topic to speak about. So I wanted to show you, Sophia, 
by faith and hope, she's endured a lot. You know, it hadn't always been joyous. But she has grown up into a girl that's still needing to exercise faith and hope because I'm still correcting her. <laughs> but one day she'll get to see her Savior if, if she's faithful. If you will, we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll start our next session in a few minutes. Our Father in heaven, we get to see your face in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so as you correct us, as you call us out of these sins and habits of life and other things that are not in harmony with you, we can see a beautiful face of meekness, of cheerfulness, of sympathy and compassion. And so we just thank you for showing us your son. We thank you for winning such a victory on the cross that when you destroy the wicked, we will not be afraid of you because you have, you're proving yourself to be love. We thank you so much for the opportunity of time that you've given us to exercise our faith and hope that we could be partakers of your divine nature. So I pray that each one here will add, give all diligence to add to their faith until it is full of charity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.